A name most of you probably won't recognize, perhaps those of you with grayer hair than I have, or perhaps no hair. John Foster Dulles. I hope that's how you pronounce his last name. I've never actually heard it spoken. He was Eisenhower's Secretary of State. And you're like, okay, that doesn't really matter to me at all, I guess. In fact, actually, it really does. John Foster Dulles was the man who is credited with the invention and the establishment of the military doctrine of massive retaliation. That's the technical term. We might call it a sudden and overwhelming retaliation. It's the idea that if somebody comes at us with a problem that's this big, we will return it this big. In fact, actually, first spoke in January 12th, 1954 in a speech in which he explained what this meant in light of the communist world. He said, local defenses must be reinforced by the further deterrent of massive retaliatory power. Otherwise, a potential aggressor who is glutted with manpower might be tempted to attack in confidence. That resistance would be confined to manpower. The way to deter aggression is for the free community to be willing and able to respond vigorously at places and with means of its own choosing. Now, what he's referring to would eventually be codified as this great nation's uh, policy on our nuclear weapons. Now, the best deterrent for our national safety, the best way to secure our national safety is for the rest of the world to know that if you mess with us, we will nuke your nation until it looks like a glass pond. You don't mess with us because we know and you know we'll mess with you worse. I make no comment on whether or not that's a good idea for national security. I don't really care. That's not what my point in the sermon is. Uh, My point instead is it's interesting that John Foster Dulles is actually credited with inventing this in 1954 when it's really the way that most of our egos have been treating each other uh, since the fall. The best way for me to make sure that my heart is protected is for all of you clowns to know that the second you hurt my feelings, I'm coming at you to hurt yours even worse. You hurt me this much, buckle up, buttercup. I'm coming at you with that. Now, again, we're not quite so unsophisticated as to actually articulate that. I mean, we're not so crass as to say we punish the people around us when they hurt our feelings. Certainly, we never say that. I mean, we're justified, right? I mean, they were hateful to us. They, They hurt our feelings, and my feelings are the most important thing. How dare they? What Dulles was doing actually was just taking how our hearts naturally respond to each other and kind of codifying it into national nuclear policy. Uh, I think this passage is one of those great passages that gives us a glimpse at just how beautiful Jesus is. That was my prayer before we started, but that we might, as we contemplate this passage, contemplate the beauty of the Christ. 
You see, Jesus has been from the beginning of Matthew, really from the beginning of the Bible and all the way through, been explained to be the Son of God. We saw it in Psalm 110 in our order of worship. That's the psalm that is one of the most quoted in the New Testament, and the New Testament authors quoted specifically in reference to Jesus. They acknowledged it was telling us about the Christ. Daniel 7 explaining to us who the second person of the Trinity is, the one that would become Jesus. He is the Christ. He is God. We find out through the entirety of the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is the Christ. He is God. He is the Son of God. He is Himself divine, fully human, and fully God. Further, He is, as God... Perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly kind and gentle, compassionate. He is holy. And in that, he's done nothing wrong. Nothing deserving any sort of negative response. Nothing deserving any sort of uh, unfair treatment. Nothing deserving any unkind word. Can you imagine that? Living his life. Knowing that every time somebody was nasty to you, you never deserved it. And actually, if we think about it, many of us actually live our lives the same way, don't we? (laughs) Thinking every time somebody's nasty to me, I didn't deserve it. I wasn't doing anything wrong. Now, if we contemplate kind of really uh, how grand the Christ is, This portion as we near the end of Matthew chapter 26 kind of it should really in some sense kind of upset our heart. It should upset our soul. It should offend us. It should shock us. It should unnerve us. I mean it ends in verse 67 with them spitting in the face of Christ Jesus. Slapping the Lord God mocking him. But even in that just horrible picture, the Christ is beautiful. A lot of little points to consider today as we contemplate just how beautiful Jesus is. First, I want to just consider briefly the level of betrayal that he subjected himself to. I mean, it's really shocking, actually, if you consider the flow of this chapter. He's taken them into the upper room to share the Passover with them, to discourse with them, to teach them. They're being petty and arguing with each other which one's more important, which one's better, which one is more significant over the other. In the middle of the meal, after teaching them in a lengthy period, Uh, It's revealed that Judas is going to be his betrayer. Verse 25 of the chapter, rather than calling him uh, a name of respect, in fact, actually kind of tongue-in-cheek rubs his nose in it and just thinks he's the rabbi. After sharing the feast together, he foretells that Peter will betray him. Peter, being perhaps good-natured but a mess, says he never will and then immediately does so. 
As the Christ goes out to pray in the garden and everybody continues to fall asleep, to fall asleep, to fall asleep so that he's left confronting the reality of the wrath of God by himself alone. His dearest friends have fallen away. They can't even stay awake. Until we get here. He wakes them up at the end, verse 46. Guys, it's time to wake up. The betrayal has come to fruition. It's time to wake up. (laughs) You're going to want to see this. And Judas shows up with a crowd in the middle of the night. Interestingly, the crowd shapes kind of the nature of the interaction as they show up with swords and clubs probably with torches, that's as in the middle of the night. And Matthew gives an aside here in verses 48 and 49 to kind of explain to us what's going to take place is that Judas had told them, and this is such an interesting thing, I guess, presuming it will be in the middle of the night, not everybody will be able to perhaps recognize each other in the dark. I, I think he's probably expecting it to go badly. That's why everybody shows up, shows up with swords and with clubs. He's perhaps expecting violence, which shows how poorly he even knows who Jesus is. But he tells them that, guys, the way that you're going to know who to arrest is he's going to be the man that I kiss. And the language that's used here in the English doesn't really translate well. We have kind of one word for kiss that covers a whole sort of range that could mean anything from, you know, the little air smooch that they do in Europe to something uh, much more intimate. What's used here is a a very specific word that is uh, one of intense um, kind of intimacy, not physically so, but relationally so. Uh, It's very likely that he either kissed Jesus' hand or even perhaps kissed Jesus' feet in the middle of this. It's very intimate. It's very sarcastic. And what a, what a just a bitter moment. Here you have the second person of the Trinity. He's stepped inside time and space. He's stepped inside humanity in order to redeem for himself a people, in order uh, to bring about the kingdom of God. And one of the men that he's taught for years uses a marker of physical affection of emotional intimacy to be the very sign of betrayal. This is bad. I mean, it's as hateful of a scheme as you could imagine. To use intimacy and an affection as a marker for arrest. This goes back to what we were confessing in our faith here with how did the Christ humble Himself in life? How did the Christ humble Himself in death? How was His ministry marked by humiliation in having been betrayed by Judas? His betrayal was Well, it's horrible as you get. Which I'm just on a word of application 
should give us a little bit of comfort when we're betrayed. Friends, when that knife's in the middle of your back and you can't quite reach it, perhaps it's in the spot you can't get or perhaps it's in too deep. The Lord knows. What a comfort. The very second person of the Trinity Himself has stepped inside time and space and intended to be betrayed in such a way. He knows the pain you feel. He knows the hurt you feel. In fact, I suspect He knows it far more intimately and far more deeply than what we do. Now again, I I suspect many of us, again, emotionally, kind of personally, we come from John Foster Dulles' position where we have the doctrine of massive retaliation. Somebody betrays us, somebody hurts us, Mm, you hurt me, I'm coming for you. We would expect if we were in this situation to explode, go nuclear, to lose our minds, to go into a rage. I marvel at Jesus in verse 50. He doesn't curse him. He could have. It would have been just and fair. He doesn't snap his fingers and turn him into a pile of ash. Could have done that. It would have been fair. Pff, gone. Right? Judas is no more. Didn't erase him from human history. He could have done that. Again, it would have been just and it would have been fair. Instead, I marvel at the beauty of Jesus. What does he do? Friend. Interestingly, whereas Judas is being hateful and sarcastic, Christ is not. Do what you have to do. Do what you came here to do. Fulfill your task. Fulfill your calling. There's a reason why you're here, and it's time. The difference here is that Christ is not afraid of death. He's not afraid of the path that he's been called to walk, and he knows it. He's embraced the betrayal. They come up and lay hands on Jesus and seize him. And it's again an interesting thing to consider, a a bit of this kind of emotional conundrum that uh, the very God of all glory has been captured by the chief priests who are supposed to be leading in his worship and been captured by the elders of the people that have been set aside for him. He is, in essence, at this point, a king that has been captured in a coup. Those that were intended to be his subjects, those that were intended to be his servants, have instead captured him and seek to conquer him. That's an amazing thing if you think about it. He's the Lord of justice. He is the one who has said that sin will not be excused, nor will it be tolerated. He would have been right and good if he had just killed them all on the spot. But it's intriguing what happens is <laughs> it plays out. He's captured by these men in verse 51. We know in another chapter it's Peter dealing with Malchus. He pulls out his sword and tries to cut the chief priest's servant's head off. 
classic Peter, his execution is a bit lacking. There's a joke in that one. Misses his head and catches the ear. Jesus, you would think, would be on board with this. He's the real king of the Jews. He's the one that's in charge. And here you have his disciples rallying to defend him. Right? Some of us would have been like, yeah, right on. You're defending Jesus. Good for you. You're doing the right thing. No, you're really not. Friends, Jesus doesn't need any defense. I hate to break it to you. He does not need you to protect his honor. He's got that locked down just fine. Instead, he heals the servant's ear and he turns to Peter and to the disciples and is like, what are you guys doing? Stop. Put your sword back in its place. Put it away. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. If you go this route now, you're all going to die here instead of living the way you're intended to live. Right? We sing this every Christmas. We sing about how he's the Prince of Peace. You forget, this is what it looks like to be the Prince of Peace. He's being unjustly arrested. He knows that he's about to be unjustly killed. He's about to go to an unjust trial. And what is he doing in the midst of it? He's promoting peace to provide for and to take care of his disciples. He's providing for their safety. Even at the expense of his own Acquainted with betrayal, he's the Prince of Peace, someone to marvel at, someone to worship, someone to delight in, to rejoice in his majesty and his beauty. And then you get this just kind of brain-melting sentence in verse 53. Guys, why are you not supposed to fight as if you could do anything that would help? That's the implied sentence there. Now, he says it, obviously, in different words, but you really think you have enough power to help? I mean, if it came down to it, I could summon a legion of angels. Remember, if you go back and look at your Old Testament, we know that one angel in one night killed 185,000 Assyrians. One. We don't know how many died in Egypt in one night. I'm going to go out on a limb and say a legion of angels is a pretty substantial thing. If every one of them that shows up in Scripture is terrifying to the people that see them, a legion of them would be kind of, we might say, world-ending. So big, so scary, so grand, so glorious. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm not looking for you to defend me. I don't need your help. You don't have enough power to do anything to help. If I wanted to defend myself, do you not think my father could do it or I could do it? Here he's showing his hand. His intention is not to win through self-defense. His intention is to win through suffering. Friends, I might hurt your feelings in saying this, but his challenge to us is no different. We are called to be his people, to be victorious in his kingdom But our victory is not through self-defense. Our victory comes through suffering, through self-sacrifice, through loss. 
I love it. That's how even it's picked up later in the scriptures here to say that uh, even our greatest victory, our last victory, is only accomplished in our death. The last enemy to be, to, to be defeated is death. How do you defeat it? <laughs> you lose to it. You die. That's how you win over death if you're a Christian. You lose to it. You die. You undergo its power for a time. You don't stay that way. Neither did Jesus. Our victory comes through suffering. Just like Christ, our exaltation comes through humiliation. Just like Christ, in fact, He is our Savior. He has paved the path ahead of us. We follow in His footsteps. He's already explained to them that this victory is going to come through suffering. It's not going to come through self-defense, but that doesn't make an entire load of sense to them yet. I, I imagine they don't get it fully. We know that. They don't until later, but he's been teaching them this all along. Verses 54 through 56 kind of round out what he's doing. Why is it that he needs to follow the path that he is? Why is it that he's choosing to follow the path that he does? Because this is the path that has been laid down from the very beginning and prophesied in Scripture. I love it. This question to the disciples, how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? If it must be said, if you want to fight that way, guys, how do you think the Bible is going to be fulfilled? How do you think we're going to fulfill Isaiah 53, which describes the suffering servant. How do you think we're going to fulfill Genesis 3, which describes a brief defeat to Satan, but victory in the end? How do you think the Scriptures will be fulfilled? They're fulfilled in Christ's loss in the short term. It's never a loss, but a victory in the long term. And interestingly, even though he's been teaching them, even though he's been preparing them, they all flee. Again, at this point, none of us, I don't think, would have been able to consider even letting ourselves suffer this way, much less the very Son of God. We would have resorted to the best defense as a good offense and would have figured out how we could hurt as many as we could along the way. The story doesn't stop there, the true story, the real history, where they seize him, the high priests, the chief, I'm sorry, the chief priests and the elders of the people, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they take him to Caiaphas' house, the high priest. And what follows here is, we might say, a sham of a trial. It's taking place at night. That was specifically illegal by Jewish rule. You couldn't try people at night. It, presumes false witnesses along the way. They're intentionally trying to use this kind of circus of a court system in order to find him guilty. And it's intriguing that what happens here is we get to see the Lord Christ intentionally, actively subjecting himself to their hypocrisy. What follows in verses 57 through 60 is just consummate hypocrisy from the religious leaders. These are the men who were 
the religious elite. These were the men who were responsible for leading the people of God to be obedient. These were the ones who were responsible even for teaching the Bible, their Old Testament. And what happens? We see them cutting corners, lying, and intentionally breaking their own rules. Do we see Christ resist? Do we see Christ get so fed up with their hypocrisy that, you know, poof, all to ash, they're all done? No, instead, interestingly, we see him even being submissive to them. I might lovingly end up kind of uh, just gently push on that for some of us right now. Some of us, depending on your political persuasion, have either suffered through this presidency or suffered through the previous presidency or suffered through both in really struggling with governmental hypocrisy, really being bothered that they're not even following their own rules, not even following their own laws. It just gets you. I would say, friends, understand Jesus, he gets it far worse than we ever could but that does not excuse poor behavior. It doesn't excuse hatred. It doesn't excuse a rebellious spirit. In fact, actually, we see Christ here subjecting himself to them, even being obedient to them. And in verse 60, they can't even find any witnesses that will give real testimony against Christ, so they have to bring in false witnesses to give testimony against Christ, and that doesn't even work. I mean, realistically, how many of you would be able to sit here and have false accusation after false accusation after false accusation leveled against you, and you'd be able to sit there with your mouth shut? Nah, right? We couldn't do that. We'd be yelling and screaming and fussing, complaining about how it's illegal, calling for a lawyer. Everything we've watched on all the courtroom dramas that doesn't actually reflect our court system at all, we'd be trying all of them. Anything and everything. Verse 63, Jesus remains silent. And then just the icing on the cake, right? The cherry on top. The high priest, the man who is the man responsible for worship, the one who is kind of at the top of the pyramid of Jewish religious life, asks Jesus a question. In essence, swear to God is the first part. If you are the Messiah, you have to tell us now. Which is a really funny question because it's not like Jesus has been hiding it. It's not like he's been kind of keeping it secret, like, I'm not going to tell anybody. He's been telling everyone. Everyone knows he's the Christ. That's why they're angry and have been trying to kill him. But interestingly, the man who's raised the dead, the man who has multiplied loaves and fish, the man who has cast out demons that were um, 
unable to be cast out in any other way, the man who has taught the scriptures with authority in a way that no one else has, the man who has performed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, who has said he is the Son of God, answers, (laughs) yep, you got it. You said it. I've been telling you this all along. It's not like it's a surprise. Indeed, I am the Christ. And he follows with a sentence that, again, for many of us is important, but doesn't really kind of smack of great importance. In fact, when in reality, it's the most probably important sentence in the chapter. It reflects our lack of knowledge of the Old Testament. What he does here is explains exactly who he is to them. I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man. That's his term for himself. It's from the Old Testament, Daniel and other places, Ezekiel. You will see him seated at the right hand. Now, seated is significant because in the kind of context in which they're talking, you seated was a sign of authority, a sign of power, a sign of respect, and here he is seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's really referencing the Daniel 7 passage that we talked about in parts of Ezekiel as well. What he's saying is that his home, the place that he resides in, the place that he deserves to be, is seated at the right hand of God the Father, clothed in the glory of God himself, for he is God. And what he gives them is more than simply a, yes, I am Christ and the Son of God. He says to them, that glory that you've read about in the Scriptures the glory cloud that you've seen in Ezekiel, the glory that's hinted at in Daniel, it's my glory. Which is why the high priest loses it. Tears his robe. Utter blasphemy! What further witness do we need? This is the most amazing. He, he raised a guy from the dead just days ago. But surely he's not God. What an indignity we see the Christ suffering. What an indignity we see God himself suffering. And again, realistically, how many of us, if we had the power that Christ Jesus had, would have had the self-control not to kill them all? He tells them he's God, and what do they do? They ridicule him, they mock him. In fact, it goes so much worse. What else do you need? You've heard his testimony. What's your judgment? The kangaroo court sentences him to death. And then proceeds to mock the Lord of glory. You would think at some point superstition might potentially kick in and say like, on the off chance that this guy actually is God, perhaps it's not a good idea to spit in his face. Perhaps on the off chance that this man is actually who he says he is. I mean, I've watched him raise people from the dead. Maybe I shouldn't hit him. Maybe. Instead, no, what do they do? They strike him, assault him, ridicule him, and then mock him for his office. And friends... 
I think this shows in so many ways the weakness of the way that we tend to think about the world. For many of us, this is the kind of person, this is the kind of response that we really wouldn't respect. Our entire movie industry is has an entire genre about normal kind of American-type people rising to the challenge and defending the weak and the needy. There's some of the the most highest-grossing movies where we love those. You get these kind of moments like Gladiator, Braveheart, or things like that. We we love them. The greatest Christmas movie ever, Die Hard. I'm just kidding. But it is a Christmas movie. We love these moments where we get to see normal and ordinary people kind of rise to greatness, but what it does is it it actually shows what we define as great. Our greatness, as we define it, is what John Foster Dulles defined in 1954. Greatness equals sudden and overwhelming revenge. Revenge. And friends, unfortunately, I can confirm you believe that by the way you treat those people who have hurt you. Rather than being those people who are content to suffer, content to let the Lord be our defender, rather than being those that are content to trust that God himself will deal with the wicked, I need (laughs) sudden and overwhelming revenge. Some of you, you act on that, and that's a nightmare. Some of you instead are cowards, and instead you just daydream about it. Right? And those are your fantasies, aren't they? The, the comeuppance that they can give, the way that you could embarrass this person, or the way you could punish that person, the way that you could uh, be miserable to that person, the way that you could watch them fail, the way that you could watch them suffer. It shows the weakness of our thought that we have so easily defined greatness as Really, it's just small-minded, petty revenge. Instead, friends, what we watch in Jesus here is divine beauty. And he was content to suffer that the Scriptures would be fulfilled, that He was content to undergo the wrath of God so that I might have my sins forgiven, so that He would be, He was content to go to the cross so that I might have hope in the life to come. He was content to endure the shame, the scorn of the cross that I might be made righteous. Because realistically, friends, if we're going to talk about people that probably have earned the Lord's revenge, I'd have to be in that list. Growing up in the church, I've been taught the scriptures since I was a young age, never knowing a day apart from Jesus, and yet the litany of sins that I've committed is too great for me to count. And I'm thankful that the one who could count them has chosen to forget them intentionally, like putting the east away from the west the mercy that he shows, the forgiveness 
he shows in Christ Jesus. I might end simply with this. I think passages like this are very useful because they show where our thinking doesn't measure up to the Bible's thinking. We value getting one over on our enemies. We value their shame, their embarrassment, their destruction, and their loss. And instead, interestingly, Christ valued the church, loved his people, and was faithful to him, and was content to let the Lord be his defender. Might it be that as we grow as a church, we kind of maybe intentionally do this a little bit more. And Tom often makes this point, but as we grow and add more people to the church, praise God that we are, those are more people that are available to hurt your feelings. Those are more people to step on your toes. And if we're going to be honest, some of us have very large toes. Might it be that our attitude toward one another in this place would be rather than seeking their destruction, seeking their sudden and inevitable end. Might it be that we would seek their good, be quick to forgive, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, honestly and only because Christ has already done all of that for us. That in doing so, this place would be the kind of place where sin is forgiven. Not just by Christ, but between brothers and sisters, between each other. And that the result would be that the body of God is united together. That our friendships are strengthened and that we're built up together, not in our own ability, but in Christ by the Spirit, and for the glory of the triune God. Let's pray. Father, we do marvel at the suffering of Christ. We confess our pride that we think we are too good to suffer the way that he did. And we confess our pride that we want to punish our neighbor more than you even do. Forgive us, and instead give us Christ. We pray for his sake, amen.